If you've been with us previously, you have heard this many times that the focus, the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better, and you might say better than what? He's better than everything, better than anything. But remember that this book was written specifically to Jewish believers who are feeling the tug to return to the fold of Judaism. And so the, the, the particular thrust is that Jesus provides a redemption that is infinitely better than that of the old covenant. The new covenant in Christ is infinitely better than the old covenant. Now, as we've seen, the old covenant saves no one. It, it, it provides no true redemption for sin. Jesus, we've seen, does save. He is, uh, his priesthood is better than the priests of the old covenant. His heavenly temple is better than the earthly temple or tabernacle made with human hands. And this morning, we're going to zero in on the fact that his sacrifice is better than the continuing sacrifices or the continual sacrifices in days gone by of the old covenant. Now, in Pastor Mark's series on Exodus, we've been looking at the building of the tabernacle and the various uh, furniture and furnishings that are provided there. And there was this large altar right there in the center of the court of the tabernacle. And every day, bulls and rams and lambs and goats were sacrificed. They were slaughtered, and blood was sprinkled on the various uh, uh, various furnishings of the temple, of the tabernacle, and the bodies were burned there in that altar. Every day, blood spilt, carcasses burned. Chapter 10, verse 11 says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Every day, the Levitical priests were engaging in that bloody ritual for over a thousand years. Think how many animals, think how much blood was shed over all of those years in this bloody ritual. In our ears, it seems primitive. It seems gory. I mean, you've seen movies where uh, there are animals involved in the movie. In the end, they say, no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. They couldn't say that in the sacrificial system. They were harmed. They were killed. They were burned. Now, you might say, well, why all the death? Why all the blood? Why all the gore? Was it all necessary? Well, it's because God is holy. And because sin against a holy God is infinitely grievous. Hebrews 9, verse 22 here says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And yet, with all that death, all that blood, it could not take away a single sin because we need a better priest. We need a better sacrifice. The Lord Jesus is our better priest. He is our better sacrifice. He himself is the only sacrifice that's acceptable to God. So, as we work our way through the text this morning, I have five points that I want to draw out. First of all, <coughs> the cost of our redemption is the death of a substitute. Someone has to die. If we're going to be redeemed, someone has to die in our place. Secondly, the first covenant was put into effect with blood, as you'll see in a moment. And then secondly, the new covenant was enacted by a better sacrifice. And then fourthly, and it's very important, Death and judgment are inevitable realities. We cannot escape thinking, facing our own mortality. Death and judgment are inescapable 
realities. And then finally, the two appearances of our Lord Jesus are drawn out in verse 28. So that's, that's where we're going this morning. First of all, let's look at the cost of our redemption, which is the death of a substitute in verse 15 and following. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. We really can't con- conceive of how grievous sin is. We tend to think of sin purely on a horizontal level, and we have this idea, as long as I'm not really hurting anybody else, what does it matter? Why is God so hung up on what I do, as long as I don't hurt anybody else? Well, that's a very man-centered view of the world, of ourselves, and of God. It's the idea that we are the standard of truth rather than God being the standard of truth. It's like in the book of, uh, the day of the book of Judges, every man does what's right in his own eyes. That was not a good thing. We should be walking in the fear of the Lord, not in selfish, self-satisfied, self-assertion. Our Puritan forebears understood something of the seriousness of sin. Uh, and you can look at some of the books that were written on sin that would, just, just the titles would, would emphasize that. Uh, Ralph Venning wrote a book called The Plague of Plagues. And his point was that as bad as the black plague was, it's nothing compared to sin. He said the least sin is worse than the greatest suffering. And in fact, he said it's better to suffer to avoid sinning than to sin to avoid suffering. How many of us have excused our sin by saying, what do you expect? This is what would happen if I didn't commit that sin. This, is, this terrible thing would have happened. This, I would have suffered. And so people are willing to sin in order to avoid suffering. We believe suffering is to be avoided at all costs. Venning says sin is to be avoided at all costs. And we can trust God with that. Thomas Watson wrote the book, The Mischief of Sin. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Evil of Evils, The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. Samuel Bolton wrote a book called Sin, The Greatest Evil. And why am I telling you this? Because these men understood the nature of sin. Their minds were shaped not by the messages of the world. Their minds were shaped by the Word of God. People today talk about social media influencers, people who take to social media trying to impact our culture, trying to influence the way people think, trying to impact the decisions they make, their purchases, their value system. They seek to influence our culture. Who's the primary influence in this world value system today? It's the prince of darkness. Ephesians 2 tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he has filled the minds of unbelievers with every sort of lie about God, about truth, about righteousness, and about sin. That's why it's so difficult for modern man to appreciate just how grievous sin is. But Scripture makes very clear the wages of sin is what? It's death, Romans 6.23 tells us. God is infinitely holy. His eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Sin must be judged. That's the righteous requirement of his law. In her book, Looking for Something Better, on the book of Hebrews, Nancy Guthrie says, I can't help but wonder if we would take sin as lightly as we do today. 
if we had to regularly slit the throat of an animal to make atonement for it. It would maybe cause us to pause a bit. But just think that even worse than slitting the throat of an animal right there in front of you, God the Son took to himself human flesh, lived on this earth for 33 years, was a servant when he deserved to be served. And then he gave himself on the cross. He laid down his life to pay the penalty for our sins because he had none of his own. And our sin required that. There's nothing less than the very death of Jesus himself that would be sufficient to pay for the least of our sins. And if we can understand that, it would give us pause before we read long, before we ran headlong into those things that draw our souls and our hearts away from the Lord. There's nothing that can compare to the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. In verse 15, we read that he is the mediator of the new covenant. He secured for us all those promises, that eternal inheritance, which speaks of eternal life. Now, what's the one obstacle between man and heaven, between us and eternal life? It's our sin. And apart from the cleansing of our sin and and apart from receiving perfect righteousness, we'd never get there. The wages of sin is death. But we read here that Jesus' death redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, our violations of the law. And that redemption extends to every single man, woman, boy, and girl who is called to him. So because the wages of sin is, is death, we need a death to take place for us. We need a substitute. And Jesus is our substitute. He died in our place. He bore the penalty you and I deserved to endure for all eternity. He was able to bear it because he is God. He's an infinite being, so he could bear all the infinite wrath of God in a limited period of time. You and I are finite beings. So if we're to bear the wrath of God, it's going to take eternity, and we would never, ever satisfy it. We could never say it is finished. That redemption of the Lord Jesus extends to every single person who's called dumb animals, could never, ever truly atone for our sins. Their blood can never satisfy the holy wrath of God. But Jesus accomplished full atonement through the new covenant. And our author here provides an illustration. He talks about a will. And a will doesn't go in effect until the person who wrote out the will dies. Now, you may have daydreamed about a rich uncle who passes away and leaves you millions. And wouldn't that be wonderful, right? Uh, are you rooting for your rich uncle to die? Because you're not getting anything until he does, right? Uh, and I don't think very many of us have an uncle like that. I sure don't. But the point there is that will doesn't go into effect unless death takes place. And in the same way, the new covenant doesn't go into effect unless Jesus died. His death was necessary to seal for us the promises and the provisions of the new covenant, the forgiveness of our sins, being made his people, and God saying, I will be your God. So the the author emphasizes here the importance of shedding of blood. He says, uh, and our second major point here, even the first covenant was put into effect through blood. Look at verse 18 in chapter 9. 
Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked here because the focus really is on Jesus' sacrifice, the new covenant. But he goes back and he talks about the old covenant for just a moment. We don't want to lose sight of where we're going here. But he says, even the first covenant required blood. In fact, it required a lot of blood. Day after day after day. We see that Moses sprinkled blood on nearly everything. And first, uh, he says in verse 22, almost everything is purified by blood. He sprinkled blood on the book, the Ten Commandments, and on the people, we read in verse 19. In verse 21, it says that the tent, the tabernacle, and all the vessels that were used in worship were purified with blood. Now, this might strike us as odd today because today blood is considered a biohazard, right? If blood is spilt, it's like, oh my goodness, we got to call in a hazmat team. We got to clean it up. We got to avoid bloodborne illnesses. We think in terms of germs. We sanitize things that were contaminated with blood. Blood is a contaminant, not a purifying agent. Well, under the old covenant, the concern was not germs, it was the ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. And the only way to purify sin was through the shedding of blood. The blood of animals doesn't, re- doesn't remove germs. In fact, it might spread some, I don't know. But the purpose of sprinkling these physical earthly items was not to sanitize them germ-wise. It was to consecrate them. It was to give them ritual purification. It's consecrated unto the Lord, taking that which is common and making it sacred through the shedding of the blood that is done under the rituals, under the rites, under the uh, dictates of that old covenant system by that qualified priest. Now, the blood doesn't change the molecular makeup of these items that were somehow uh, toxic and now it makes them clean. No, it, it takes common items, things that are just common, and now makes them sacred, consecrated unto the Lord. That's the point. It's not some magic hocus pocus going on, but rather it's simply consecrating these things for the service and the worship of God. And the blood of the animals emphasizes just how serious a matter it is to come into the presence of this holy God. And of course, blood is, is required not only for the consecration of these uh, temple items, but also for the forgiveness of sins, to make atonement for us. But again, as we've said over and over again, the blood of animals was not adequate. Chapter 10, verse 4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, you might say, no, wait a minute. If it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, then why for a thousand years were there bulls and goats and rams and lambs slaughtered every single day? And the answer is twofold. Number one, all of these things point toward the Lord Jesus. They were a shadow of what was to come. It was, it was a, a, a uh, they were copies of the heavenly things we read here, pointing, preparing the way to our perfect sacrifice to the Lord Jesus. But secondly, uh, in Hebrews 10 and verse 3, it tells us these, in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, speaking of the Day of Atonement. And those constant sacrifices was a reminder of the gravity of sin and the seriousness of what it is to enter into the presence of a holy God. 
So everything had to be purified by the shedding of blood. And in the new covenant, this is the third point here, the new covenant is enacted by a better sacrifice. Verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. All the elements of the Old Testament were consecrated with the blood of animals, as we've already seen. And they're, they're simply copies of the heavenly things. It says in verse 24, the holy places that were made with hands are copies of the true things, the heavenly realities. And again, that blood, that sacrificial system was all inadequate. It was, in, it was insufficient to make atonement for sins and reconcile us to God. But the heavenly things, those true things are purified with better sacrifices. That doesn't mean that anything in heaven is impure. It doesn't mean that it's impure until it needed to be purified. Again, it's the consecration focus. All the provisions of the old covenant, of the new covenant, are, are secured by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, a better sacrifice. His death on the cross was a better sacrifice than that of any animal, bull, goat, ram, or lamb. He willingly laid down his life as the God-man, pure, perfect, sinless. In verse 24, it refers really to the priestly work of Christ. He entered, uh, Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands. That's what a priest, what Levitical priest would do. These are copies of the true things, but he entered heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's not in heaven pleading with God to show us mercy. God has already shown us mercy, and that won't change. I've read of people who are sincere Christians, and yet they've committed grievous sin somewhere in their past. And they're haunted by the guilt of it. And they say, I know God has forgiven me, but I, I can't forgive myself. The problem is not they're not forgiving themselves. They don't really truly believe God has forgiven them. They have not understood the freedom of a clean conscience. And yet that's exactly what the Lord Jesus came to do, to free us from the guilt, from the stain from the power, and even from the defiled conscience of our sin. We read of our Lord Jesus appearing before the Father. Again, not to persuade God to change his mind and not judge us. God is not going to judge any of us. Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. And he's demonstrated that. He demonstrated the greatness of his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus didn't die to persuade the Father to love us. He died because the Father loves us. And he secures for us that entry into heaven. And so his priestly ministry now, he intercedes for us before the Father is simply to continue the flow of God's grace to each one of us to pray for that which we truly need. Sometimes we don't know. Uh, in Romans 8, it says, we don't know what to pray for. The Spirit intercedes for us with groaning. Uh, and that's consistent with our Savior, the Lord Jesus, praying for us perfectly, knowing exactly what we need. Wisdom, strength, self-denial, self-forgetfulness, humility, uh, whatever we need. He's our intercessor. He's our priest. He's our great high priest. 
Chapter 8, verse 1 tells us he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 725, Hebrews 725 says he ever lives, always lives to make intercession for us. And his sacrifice was better. And the reason it was better is because it's finished. The one who was sacrificed was infinitely better, obviously, than bulls and goats and rams and lambs. But it's finished. It's a one-time sacrifice for all. Verses 25 and 26 tell us that those old covenant sacrifices were repeated day after day and on the day of atonement, year after year after year, for maybe a thousand or over a thousand years. The continual flow of blood that accomplished nothing of truly eternal significance, nothing that truly redeems, all pointing to what the Lord Jesus would do. His sacrifice, offering himself once and for all time, satisfying all of the righteous requirements of God's law. And as he died, he could cry out, it is finished. There's nothing else needs to be done to pay for your sin or for my sin. It's paid for in full by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Full atonement has been made. The sacrifice was complete. It needed no other. Justice has been fully satisfied. It smiles and asks no more, one of our hymns says. And then grace flows freely to everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. Well, the fourth major point I want us to look at this morning is that death and judgment are inevitable realities. If you've gone through any kind of evangelism training, I'm sure that you at some point learned Hebrews 9 and verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. Now, it's interesting. There are many places in the Bible where verses uh, contain general and eternal truths that apply in many ways, and yet they're applied in a very specific way. For instance, Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That doesn't mean that you can be like Superman and, you know, you're stronger than a locomotive or you can, you know, leap tall buildings in a single bound, but you can do everything that God calls you to do through Christ who gives you strength. But Paul gives us that statement in the specific context of being content while he was in prison. I can be content when my circumstances argue against contentment. I can do, I can find contentment in places that otherwise would be very uncomfortable because I can do all things through him that gives me strength. You see the point. And so here, the, the reason that the writer of Hebrews is citing this statement, uh, it's appointed to man to die once and after this to face judgment, he's making a point that is carried over into verse 28, which says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. So his point there is that in the same way that it was appointed for man to die once, so also Christ died once. And that's all that was necessary. He died, he was offered once to bear our sins. Never again to be repeated because it is finished. And so we don't repeat the sacrifice there are those who teach that every time they observe the, 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 the communion table, the mass, Jesus is being sacrificed over and over again, and they, the, the blood somehow, or the, the cup somehow is the real blood of Christ, and the, 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 the bread is somehow the real body of Christ, and Christ is suffering again to pay for the sins that we've committed since the last time we took the mass. No, Christ suffered once for all time and will never be repeated, ever. 
And what we do in the Lord's table, that communion, is an observance, a recognition, a celebration of his once-for-all sacrifice. It's not a repeat of his sacrifice. Hebrews 10 makes it absolutely, totally clear, one time, never to be repeated. But there is an important point here. There's a general biblical truth that it is appointed unto man to die once and after that to face judgment. God is sovereign over everything that happens in our universe. He's ordained all things that come to pass, and that includes the day of your birth, everything that takes place between the day of your birth and your death and your death, when that happens. It is inevitable. It is unavoidable. Every single one of us will pass from this life. Now, it may be that Jesus comes back in your lifetime, and then you, uh, you don't experience death, but if he doesn't come back in your lifetime, sooner or later you're going to die. You know, researchers have, have discovered that 100% of the people who breathe air and drink water die. You can, you can make statistics say anything, can't you? We don't want to face the reality of our own mortality, but it is inevitable. You cannot escape it. Now, in Genesis 5, we read of a man named Enoch. He was a godly man. He walked with God, and he was no more. And Hebrews 11 tells us that he didn't face death. Okay, there's an exception. Uh, Possibly Elijah. I think maybe Elijah didn't die. Uh, He and Elisha were walking together, and Elijah uh, tells him uh, that he's going to pass the mantle onto him. And then a chariot, chariots of fire and horses of fire come down, and they land between Elijah and Elisha. And then Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind. I think that means he didn't die. But those are the only exceptions I find in my Bible. Every single person who's ever lived has died. And that includes Jesus. But he rose. He conquered sin and death for us that we do not have to die a second time. We do not have to experience the second death of God's judgment But he says, it's appointed to every one of us to die, and then comes judgment. My question is, are you prepared to die, and are you prepared for what comes after you die? Because every single man and woman will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and you will either stand fully justified in the righteousness of Christ, or you will stand condemned in your own sense. Those are the only two options. There's no way to work your way around it. There are religions that teach reincarnation. You die, and then you come back in some other form. If you lived a good life, you come back better. If you lived a bad life, you come back worse. But hopefully, after enough cycles, you can kind of get to nirvana. No, it's appointed to man to die once. And from that point, he faces eternal judgment that will seal his fate for all eternity, either heaven or hell. There are no second chances with a judge justice of God. Once you die, that's it. It is too late to say, oh, I wish I had done something different. I wish I had paid attention to the preacher. I wish I had uh, truly repented and believed in Christ. I knew I needed to. I just kept putting it off. Well, then it'll be too late. Young people, you have the idea that somehow you're invincible. That's why young people drive ridiculously fast and take all kinds of ridiculous risks that those of us who have a few years under our belt and a few mistakes in our past have learned our lesson and we don't do anymore. Uh, My son used to say, Dad, why can't I learn from my own mistakes? And I said, because it hurts too much. 
took him a few years to come back and go, you were right, it does. You have this idea that you're going to live forever. People tell you your whole life is before you, and it might be, but it might be very brief. Remember the parable of the rich fool? He was a prosperous farmer, and he, he had all kinds of crops, and so he, he, he realized, I have more than I, can, than I can store in my barns. Someone will tear down my barns and build bigger barns, and then I can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And the Lord says, you fool! This very night, your soul is required of your hands. And the idea that you can prepare for the future with this bright future ahead of you, nothing can get in the way of it. There's nothing that can get in the way of eternity if you're in Christ. But that's the only certainty we can absolutely be sure of. Now, the Lord's gracious and gives us wonderful blessings here in this life. Without question, I don't want us to walk around going, remember death. I don't want to send you home in a cloud of doom, all right? But the thing we can truly be certain of is remember eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is our hope and that is our joy. And if we're not looking to that, we're looking way too short. We're way too nearsighted. It's appointed to every single one of us to die once, and you do not know when that will be. That's why it's essential. Hear me. It's essential that you prepare now. Now is the day of salvation. That you trust in those better sacrifices of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, Whatever your age, you may be a child, you may be an adult, you may be a young person. I want to urge you, turn to Jesus while there's time. He calls us to repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in him. And he he promises, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I have a saying, I say, while there's breath, there's hope. And as long as you have breath, there is hope to come to Christ. You may be old and you might say, I've just, I've, I've blown it too many times. I thought that when I was 14. I thought I'd send away my day of grace. When I was pleading with God to save me, I thought he was saying, no, not you. It's too late. You've, you've played the hypocrite too many times. I found that wasn't true because whoever comes to him, he'll never drive away, whatever your age and whatever you may have done. As long as you're still alive, there's time to turn to the Lord Jesus and to repent. But you don't know how much time you have. None of us does. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how many terrible things you may have done. Jesus' blood is sufficient to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But again, please hear me. You do not know which breath will be your last. So how much wiser it would be to use that breath to call out to the Lord Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior. We don't have to go out of here today under a cloud of doom and gloom. We can go out rejoicing that our names are written in the book of life, and we can look death in the the face and say that is merely a passageway to eternal life and eternal blessedness and glory. Hear me, do you have that hope? Is that hope alive in you, giving you stability and security and joy in the face of whatever may come your way? Do you have confidence if you were to die tonight, you absolutely confident you would go to heaven? and be with God for all eternity. Jesus came to this earth for the purpose of giving us that confidence to redeem every single one who would put their trust in him. If you're not a Christian, won't you come to him even today? He invites you. Why would you die? 
I want to finish by considering together these, in verse 28, the two appearings that he refers to. In verse 28, we read, in verse 27, just as it appointed for man to die to once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, there's no one in this world who has been as impactful to the world, the entire world, than Jesus Christ. He is the most impactful person who has ever walked the face of this earth. And everything that happened before his death and resurrection was pointing toward that great event. And everything that has happened since his resurrection and ascension into heaven is pointing forward to his second appearance. He will come again. That first appearance, he came and was offered once to bear the sins of many. My question is, does that include you? Did he die for your sins? You can't know that unless you are trusting in him. That's the test. Did he die for me? Or are you trusting in him? You can be sure he did. Has he given you a heart to run to him? The reason you have a heart to run to him is because he's yours and you're his. He's given you a new heart that wants him and nothing else. That's the evidence that he died for you. It doesn't do any good to believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for sins of whoever would trust him and then not do it. Imagine being in a, a, a large building and someone knocks on the door and you open it and there's a fireman standing there saying, this building is on fire. And if you don't follow me right now, you're going to die. There's no way, there's only one way out and I can lead you there. But if you don't follow me right now, you will not survive. Now, intellectually, you can say, well, that's very interesting. I don't hear any alarms going off. I don't feel any heat. I don't see any smoke. I don't see any flames. But you're a fireman, and I think you probably know what you're talking about, so I believe you. Have a nice day. Really? If you believe him, what are you going to do? You're going to go. You're going to take that exit. You're going to take that path to safety and to life. And you can say all day long, I believe you, but if you don't follow him, you don't really, unless you've got a warped death wish. Do you believe your sin is serious? Do you believe Jesus paid the wages of our sin? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is our great high priest, the better priest of a better sacrifice? That's why he came the first time. He will appear a second time. And that will be the consummation, the climax of all of human history. Not to deal with sin, we read here, but rather to save those who are eagerly waiting for his return, those who are trusting in him as Lord and Savior. Not to secure our salvation, but rather to apply the full benefits of our salvation. You remember, when Jesus came the first time, he was humble. He was born in a, in, a, in a stable and laid him in a manger in some very inconspicuous family and location. He was from Nazareth. That, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, Isaiah tells us he had no form or majesty or beauty that people would be attracted to him. He looked ordinary. He lived an ordinary life. There was nothing about him that would suggest he was the king of kings and lord of lords. Nothing that would uh, radiate to people around him. This is the Messiah. And most people failed to recognize him as the Messiah. 
He came as a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He came to, not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's how he came the first time. But when he appears the second time, he will come as the conquering king. He's going to be robed in radiant glory on a white horse with a sharp sword coming from his mouth. And he will judge his enemies. There will be no mistaking this is the Messiah. Every eye will see. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Psalm chapter 2 tells us the kings of the earth take counsel. They set themselves up and they take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed one. But it tells us that when he comes, he will break them with a rod of iron. He'll bring judgment upon those who have opposed him. He will vindicate himself. They laugh and they scoff and they say, who is this Jesus? They'll know. Many of us will confess with great joy our Savior. Others will confess. Uh, <clears throat> I, I remember my Greek prof using the uh, Perry Mason uh, uh, TV show, and many of you wouldn't remember that, but at the end of every single one, and it never happens like this, but at the end of every Mer- Perry Mason episode, uh, the attorney, Perry Mason, is up there uh, speaking to a witness, and he, he, he asks the final question. And sometimes it's the, it's the person on the stand, but sometimes it's the person out in the, in the audience that just hangs their head and confesses and says, I did it. They're confessing, but not because they're delighted to confess. They're confessing because they have no other option, no escape. It's the inevitable, unavoidable conclusion that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will confess that to their greatest joy. Some will confess that to their greatest sorrow and their condemnation. Revelation chapter 6 tells us that the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, and even the slave and the poor, they will run into the caves and they'll cry out on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. But there's no hiding. Every eye will see. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But that's not what's emphasized here in Hebrews 9. What's emphasized here in Hebrews 9 is that he's going to appear to save his people who are waiting eagerly for his appearance. That day has been called the great and terrible day of the Lord, but for the Christian it's great, but it's not terrible. It will be great and glorious. You may be alive when that day comes. You may have passed from this life If you're alive, you'll be taken up into the clouds. If you pass from this life, you will come with him in the clouds. But either way, it will be a great and glorious day, the most glorious day ever beyond our wildest imagination. There's no dread of that day for those who are in Christ. That is the day of our final victory. That is a day when we experience the benefits of salvation in its fullness. And that's why it describes us as eagerly waiting for him on that day. The world holds nothing for you. Hear me. The world holds nothing for you that compares to the glory of the new heaven and the new earth. However rich and sweet our fellowship is as Christians, it pales in comparison to what we'll enjoy in heaven. But whatever's out there that tries to draw us away from the Lord, it's a terrible counterfeit and it will leave you empty and disappointed but that day will take that full salvation and it will be glorious 
Revelation 21 tells us, describes what that day will be like. And I want to close by reading this text. In Revelation 21, just listen. You, you can turn and read if you'd like, but listen carefully. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Kind of rings to what Jeremiah said about the new covenant, doesn't it? Now fulfilled. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.